When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Welcome all to a new episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Riminus. My apologies first for not getting an episode out last Saturday. I have a tendency to take on more projects than I can handle. And with the holidays to add to the chaos, I'm a little stretched for time these days. Nonetheless, I am committed to continuing to produce episodes. Although in the next few weeks, as I get ready for my regular Most Notorious podcast which, by the way, requires a boatload of interviews and books to read, as well as a YouTube video series I'm creating. Um, The episodes may not be as regular as I'd hoped, so bear with me. Keep subscribed, and the content will continue to come through 2019. Let's get to the show. Uh, So first, today is a brief story about a horrific series of murders committed by the Barker Carpus Gang in Minneapolis in 1932 as they robbed the third Northwestern Bank and made their escape. Then I talked to Bruce Rubenstein, who in his book The Rockwell Heist documents a daring robbery of a number of Norman Rockwell paintings from a Twin Cities museum in 1978, and the mystery that follows is fascinating. Of all the Depression-era outlaw gangs, none was considered smarter or nastier than the Barker Carpus Bunch. The Barker boys were Doc and Fred, dark-haired brothers who were so mean that they wouldn't hesitate to gun down a cop who even looked at them the wrong way. 
Elvin Creepy Carpus was considered by many to have a near-genius IQ, and he acted as the brains of the gang, masterminding some of the most brilliant kidnappings in American history. Prominent Minnesota businessmen like William Ham Jr., heir to the Ham's Brewery, and Edward Bremer of the Bremer Banking family were both kidnapped by the gang in St. Paul, and their collective ransom totaled to an impressive $300,000, a near fortune in the early 1930s. Ma Barker, Doc and Fred's mother, is probably the best-known member of this traveling death circus, and was portrayed by J. Edgar Hoover in the FBI as a cold-blooded matriarch who trained her boys from birth in pure evilness. But in reality, this was not the case. Hoover hadn't even heard of her until his men cornered she and Freddie in a house in Florida and filled it with holes. When they discovered her body, the myth was created to cover up the fact that the FBI had killed a harmless old woman. Ma did travel with Doc, Freddie, and Elvin, and they conveniently used her as a cover, but she didn't commit the crimes themselves, preferring putting puzzles together and listening to hillbilly music on the radio rather than bothering with the business of her men. One of the Barker Carpus gang's first forays into the Twin Cities was in 1932. The gang had been trying to smooth the way politically for months in Minneapolis, with Elvin Carpus and Fred Barker handing over $10,000 in campaign contributions to a candidate for mayor, Ralph Van Leer. They wanted the ability to come and go into Minneapolis without the fear of police harassment, hence the reason for the bribes while they planned their bank robberies. And planned, they did. Through the fall of 1932, they held up banks in Redwood Falls, Minnesota, and Wapaton, North Dakota, hightailing it back to the Twin Cities to lay low and regroup between robberies. On December 16, 1932, however, they decided to hold up a bank in Minneapolis, and it would end up being one of their bloodiest days in the Barker Carpus Gang's spectacularly violent history. Their target was the Third Northwestern National Bank, a three-sided building filled with big glass windows, which sat on what is now a three-sided lot bordered by 5th Street, Central Avenue, and Hennepin Avenue. The gang numbered seven that day, including Doc, Fred, Elvin, and also Larry the Chopper Duvall, William Weaver, and Jess Doyle. Rounding out the group was Vern Miller, who would later, along with Pretty Boy Floyd, 
be responsible for the Kansas City Massacre, where an FBI agent, three police officers, and the guy Vern Miller was trying to break out of police custody, his friend Frank Jelly Nash, were all killed. The gang had cased the Third Northwestern Bank for weeks, and on December 16th, they pulled up to the bank and quietly entered the building, two into the Central Avenue entrance and two into the Hennepin Avenue doors, armed with Thompson submachine guns and 45 caliber automatics fitted with extra-large clips. Larry Duvall, carrying a machine gun himself, stood in front of the bank, guarding the entrance. The hoods inside, led by Fred Barker and Vern Miller, got to work. Fred yelled at the bank tellers to open the vault, and Miller forced the bank's customers to the floor, face down. When a bank teller insisted he couldn't get the vault open, Miller pistol-whipped him. But not before the teller was able to trip the bank's silent alarms. That brought two police officers, Ira Evans and Leo Gorski, to the scene of the holdup. Their shifts had just ended, but they raced to the bank and were met by Larry Duvall, who immediately sprayed the police car with machine gun fire from 15 feet away. Other members of the gang inside broke the bank's windows and assisted in the bullet barrage, which instantly killed Officer Evans and mortally wounded Officer Gorski. For many years afterwards, you could find bullet holes as evidence of the gunfire in the walls of the bar across the street. The gang made for their getaway car, fresh with $22,000 in cash and $100,000 in securities. Their Lincoln tore east on 5th, then onto Hennepin, and then onto Larpenter, screeching back to St. Paul along a series of twists and turns that Carpus fondly nicknamed Bank Robbers Row. As they sped to safety, however, they knew that they needed to switch cars. A tire had been punctured by one of their own stray bullets. Driving much of their way on the car's rim, they finally made it to an area of Como Park where they had parked a Chevy for just this possibility. The gang piled out of the Lincoln, and as they began switching the license plates on the Chevy, a driver in a car passing by slowed down, curious to see what was going on. The car was driven by a man named Oscar Erickson, who had been out trying to sell Christmas wreaths to neighbors in the area. 
as Erickson drove the car by. Fred Barker thinking that Erickson was trying to copy down their license plate number, pulled out a pistol and opened fire on Erickson, hitting him square in the head. Erickson's friend, Arthur Zachman, sitting in the passenger seat, drove the car to the police station. Erickson was taken to the hospital, where he died the next day of his wounds. And as for the Barker Carpus gang, they got away scot-free and lived to terrorize and kill another day. And now on to our interview. I'm joined today by investigative journalist Bruce Rubenstein, who has covered crime and politics since the 1980s. He's here to tell us about his book, The Rockwell Heist, which documents the theft of seven Norman Rockwell paintings in 1978 and the 20-year search for the art that followed. Thanks again for agreeing to chat with me about this. Well, thank you for calling. This is a great story. When did you first hear it, and what prompted you to put it on paper? Uh, Let's see. The editor of uh, MSP Magazine contacted me and said that there were a couple of stories that might fit my writing style, so to speak. uh, I had my choice of a few of them, and this was the one I chose. And so I wrote an article about it, which preceded the book by, by a couple of years. And the article, I would say, was, well, I didn't know much of anything at that point except the, the outlying facts, which were interesting enough in themselves because those paintings were missing for 22 years and were retrieved, which is kind of, I don't know if it's unique, but it's certainly unusual. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's start by setting the story up and head back to the scene of the crime. It was February 16th, 1978, if I have that date correct, at Elaine Galleries in St. Louis Park. And it was a, a celebration of sorts, right? Well, it was a big, a big gala opening of Norman Blackwell's paintings. And Blackwell was going to be there, but he had he was an old man by then, and he... It, he was originally scheduled to appear, but he decided he couldn't for health reasons, and it wasn't long after that that he died. But that night, you know, the festivities went on without him, and uh, yeah, it was a big night. Could you describe the paintings that were on display that day? Well, I'm let's see. <laughs> I'm a ways away from this book, but I, there was six of them. A couple were on loan from Brown and Bigelow Corporation. A couple, one was owned by the gallery itself, and uh, private owners had the, had the other two, I believe. And one of them, it, it was referred to as one painting and two paintings variously because it was a diptych called Getting Ready for the Date. And it was a couple of young people getting dressed for the prom or something like that. And let's see. Okay, that one was referred to as Date, Cowgirl, Date, Cowboy. That's two paintings sometimes referred to as one. There was something called The Spirit of 1976. 
which was some Boy Scouts with a sort of mimicking a painting of the Revolutionary War band of of guys with drums and fights. There was something called No Swimming, and there was something called Summer, and something called Winter. And one more called She's My Baby. And these were all studies for Saturday evening post uh, covers, if I'm not mistaken. In a Renoir, right? Or at least what was thought to be a Renoir at the time. (laughs) Yeah, an alleged Renoir. Correct, yes. Who were some of the guests invited to the gala? Well, I mean, she'd been in the kind of a mover and shaker in our circles for a while, Elaine had. So, you know, there were the usual people that would show up at that artist that she worked with, uh, wealthy people that wanted to collect art. And then she had her own way of publicizing these kind of things, which actually involved, among other things, putting flyers under people's windshield wipers in the suburbs and that kind of stuff. So there was a big a very big crowd there. And I don't know exactly how you characterize it. Uh, the Twin Cities art crowd, artists, and just ordinary people off the street. And a few other people who obviously had theft in mind. Norman Rockwell, um, the artist, where was he in his career by 1978? He wasn't at the, the pinnacle of his popularity yet, right? No, it wasn't at the pinnacle of his. Well, <laughs> his personal popularity was kind of peaking because he didn't last long after that. But his paintings increased in value kind of exponentially after he died. And he slowly gained uh, some credence in circles where he hadn't been thought much of previously. Um, he got some creds as, a, as an artist over the, probably the 10, 15 years after he died. Uh, at the time that this opening took place, he was just, a, you know, there was a, uh, a kind of cult of collectors who liked him, and his paintings were worth quite a bit because of that. And he had a big reputation because of all of the Saturday evening post covers. And uh, he was a well-known and uh, highly successful artist, but his... His credentials and his reputation as an artist grew after that. When was the art discovered missing, and and how did the investigation begin? Well, you might want to step back a day or two, because when the preparations were on for this opening, uh, I think, I don't, was it the day before or the day before that? I'm not sure. It's been a while since I wrote this book. But uh, three kind of very shady-looking characters walked in to the gallery, and the gallery actually wasn't open. They were preparing for the opening, but it wasn't locked up, so it wasn't such a big deal that they walked in. But they walked around and kind of assessed things and looked. One of them never took off his sunglasses, which is kind of a funny way to look at art. And they aroused a lot of suspicion, and they hung around by the Renoir. And the general feeling was these guys didn't look like art collectors. They looked like thieves. And then there was the opening. And, you know, the Lindbergs had gone to some, taken some steps to, to make that place secure. They thought they had a theft proof. That's what their theory was. 
and they had hired a Pinkerton detective to be around in the premises. And nevertheless, that night, those paintings were stolen. Someone got in there, a, a group of people got in there, four people got in there, and they knew exactly what, what they were after, and they grabbed all the Rockwell paintings in the Renoir. And they actually didn't grab all the rest. They were interrupted at, uh, and left one Rockwell painting behind. But they got, I can't remember now, was it five of the six or six of the seven that they got of the Rockwells and this alleged Renoir painting. What kind of security system did the gallery have? Well, they had what they called a state-of-the-art alarm system. They had a state-of-the-art lock, and they had this Pinkerton guy who was supposed to be on the premises. And there's reasons that no one can quite figure out disappeared for about a half an hour. There was later some uh, question of whether he was actually contracted to be on premises or was he supposed to come by every half hour or not. That was unclear. So... He wasn't necessarily involved, but in any case, he didn't interrupt the he didn't interrupt the theft. And since he was only gone for about a half hour, it didn't take long. It was well planned. This would ultimately become a federal investigation, right? Well, it starts out with the local police, but then as soon as it becomes some question that that these things are on the uh, may have left the state and they're worth a lot of money and it's a big theft, yeah, the FBI got involved fairly soon afterwards. But it started out as a St. Louis Park police investigation. So who did these paintings actually belong to? Well, two of them belonged to two brothers, the Horvath brothers, who had been customers of the gallery for a while and bought other paintings. And uh, two of them belonged to Brown and Bigelow, that's four. One belonged to Gallery, that's five. There's a sixth uh, private collector here in town. I can't, I can't remember his name. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll come to me. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. 
who became the primary suspects in the thefts initially? Well, okay, the Horvath brothers, who owned two of those paintings, had reputations as being involved in marijuana here in the Twin Cities. And they were the immediate first suspects, and they were investigated pretty hard for about three days, and they were eliminated. And one good reason they were eliminated is because they they actually lost a painting that was not insured. There was some confusion about whether the gallery had insurance on these paintings or the the owners were supposed to insure them themselves. Elaine maintains, and I it, it seems to be true, that she told everybody who owned those paintings that the gallery wasn't insuring. And the Horvath thought that the gallery had, and so did the owner of the alleged Renoir, and I don't think there was any particular hard feelings about it. It was a misunderstanding. But the, the Horvath lost something pretty valuable there. Among the players in this drama was Elaine Lindbergh herself, and she had a pretty interesting background, too. She was widely known as an expert in signatures. Is that right? Yeah, she she had gotten interested in handwriting, and through that she became an expert on signatures, and she she had been a, a store detective, and she had quite a reputation as a forensic document uh, and analyzer, whatever you would call it. She, she was an expert witness at a lot of trials, and she knew plenty of people in the underworld because of that. And... She knew the art world, she knew the underworld, so it could very well have been her. That was the idea. And she was investigated for a long time, too. By a long time, I mean weeks. And they eliminated her pretty fast. Part of the story revolves around the Renoir and Elaine Lindbergh's attempt to authenticate it. Could you tell that story? (laughs) Well, okay, uh... There was a guy that came into that gallery often. His name was Buddy Burson. And he, apparently, his interest in art was uh, mostly had to do with buying and selling it. And he was acquainted with a stewardess for Northwest Airlines who knew people in Miami who told, she told Burson they were in possession of a, a Renoir. And he, you know, fancied himself an an art dealer, a wheeler dealer, and he wanted to go down and buy that Renoir. He wanted to take someone with him who knew whether it was for real or not. And he brought Elaine Lindbergh down. And she authenticated it. I I think in her defense, she said it it looked for real to her. And he paid what seemed to be a bargain price for it. Uh, what did he play? He paid about $15,000 or something like that. And this is this is a painting that, if it was for real, I mean, who knows what it was worth. I, you know, it wasn't for real. That's, that's what it amounts to. But at the time of the opening, both she and the owner, Burson, thought it was for real, and there was a lot of publicity about this original Renoir that was on uh, on display during this 
Blackwell opening. What were some of the other rabbit holes investigators went down while pursuing leads on this? They had, well, you know, they were just, when something like that happens, tips start coming in, and they started following up on these tips. And they they got phone calls from Colorado and California. They had a lot of calls from people in, in Minneapolis. And there was a point at which a woman said that she was a medium and it had come to her in a trance that that those paintings were not missing. They were hidden in the ceiling of the art gallery, and they actually came in and tore up the ceiling to see if it was true. And uh, I, th- there was about a year there where that was a pretty active investigation, and they followed up on a lot of leads, and they all led nowhere is what it amounts to. They did, however, get a few leads that were for real, which they had, which would have been very difficult to follow up on. So there was a lot more energy expended following up on the leads that were kind of dead ends. So over the years, both Elaine and her daughter Bonnie, after the investigation began to wane, they continued to try and locate these paintings on their own. Yes, they did. Yeah, they did. And uh, a couple of times they were close, although a couple of times the FBI was close. There was a point at which there was a deal made to recover those paintings and that was in Detroit and I gotta say it was five six years after the theft the FBI had made an arrangement through a lawyer where there would actually be a reward paid to somebody who would then make it known where those paintings were and there was some elaborate arrangement to, to exchange the money and the paintings but it fell through but they had reason to believe it was real. Whoever made that deal knew where the paintings were at that time, and they were somewhere in the northern district of Michigan, the northern federal district of Michigan, because that's the deal the FBI made was they would give that guy 10 hours, or a certain number of hours after he tipped them where it was, where he could cash that check and get out of town, and then they'd go get those paintings. You know, and and that was part of the deal, that it would be in that federal district in Michigan. The business of art theft is a huge one, isn't it? And oftentimes the the mafia is involved. Yeah, it's a huge business, and the mafia is almost always involved, even if they're not involved in the original theft, because they have ways of actually monetizing art, which it turns out is pretty hard to do. And as I found out as I researched that book, it's not that hard to steal paintings, but it's very hard to sell stolen paintings. And especially if they're masterpieces, especially if they're kind of things that are valued in the millions, because you stop and think what the practical matter is, is somebody has to put up that kind of money to buy something that no one will ever see. It'd be hard to get rid of again. It just be pretty unusual to be able to make a deal like that. But the organized crime, the mafia, and generally a, a, a network of people in Europe eventually figured out a way to use uh, stolen art, especially very valuable stolen art, as, what do you call it? 
the word kind of escapes me. But you put this thing up and then you get something in return. What they would get in return is large amounts of heroin. And that painting was collateral for it. And so they could use it as collateral, get this heroin basically on credit at that point, sell the heroin, pay off the supplier and keep their profit. And the collateral was the painting. So they can be they can be monetized over and over again. So though the the Rockwell paintings made their way to Europe and the theory is that whoever was dealing with them in Europe, probably in Portugal, that seems to be where they were for a while, found out that even though those paintings had quite a bit of value in the United States, they didn't have much value in Europe. So they weren't in a league where organized crime could use them as collateral for for drugs or guns. That's another thing that gets traded that way. But once that was discovered somewhere in this 22-year odyssey while they were gone, they made their way into Portugal through the or out of Portugal to Brazil by way of the Brazil uh, the was it the Brazilian state police and the Brazilian customs people were in on that and uh, into the hands of a collector in Brazil. As Elaine and Bonnie continued their search for the paintings, they had a contact in the FBI named Robert Whitman. Is that right? Yeah, Bob Whitman, yes. What was his role in all this? The FBI actually created a position for him. That's his, that's my recollection. He got to know a lot about art, and he became their the FBI's art theft guy. And Bonnie and first first Elaine Lindbergh and then Bonnie Lindbergh, you know, pestered him to try and find those paintings, and they were kind of disappointed in the fact that he didn't. And uh, you know, they, they they were on relatively cordial terms, but Bonnie told me she wasn't happy with the FBI's efforts at all. And, I mean, her point was is that they gave up at some point. And uh, I, I think that's true. I think they give up on everything after a while, though. I mean, they, they went after those paintings hard right through that Detroit episode, and then they... Uh, they they saw that they they pretty much done everything they could do, and uh, of the people who owned the paintings, the Lindberghs were particularly anxious to get them back. Brown and Bigelow didn't seem to care much. Uh, well, I'll leave it at that. The Lindberghs really wanted those paintings back. And Brown and Bigelow didn't care much at all. Didn't seem to Brown and Bigelow had changed hands since those paintings were purchased several times, I think. And the owners of Brown and Bigelow, the present owners, really had no interest in them. Didn't know what all the hullabaloo was about. So the Lindberghs were able to facilitate the return of some of those paintings. And the return was covered by one of the television news stations. Isn't that correct? Okay. What happened was, this is what I remember. You might be able to refresh my memory. But there came a point when... The customs agent in Brazil, uh, a man entered Brazil, and the theory is Brazil doesn't have an extradition treaty. 
with the United States. I don't know general, what the law is. Maybe they don't extradite, period. But what it amounts to is if you have some money, you can go into, you can go to Brazil and you can be, you can be guaranteed that you won't be extradited. And this guy gave up those Rockwells at the board, at the Brazilian customs in exchange for, uh, protection against extradition. And they found their way into the hands of a pretty well known art professor and collector in Rio de Janeiro who had a home in the mountains that was sort of a doubled as an estate and a place for his art collection to be displayed. And I believe he had an art school up in that town too. And there was some negotiation back and forth between the Lindberghs and him. He, he notified the Lindberghs that he had them. And they entered into negotiations with, by this time, Elaine and her husband were dead. Bonnie and her brother uh, entered into negotiations with this guy. And they also brought Channel over the Care TV along with them because, you know, they were, Bonnie was a, knows about publicity. And she, she, they were still running the gallery at this point, I think. And, Care, Care TV, Care 11 TV did a documentary about the recovery of these paintings. So these cameramen were with them and a producer and they all went up into the hills and met with this guy and talked to him and uh, negotiated through the night. And I think Gary finally made the deal with the guy and the paint, money changed hands but it was a lot less money than those paintings were actually worth on the market when they were recovered. And the Lindberghs recovered their paintings 22 years after they were stolen. As you did your own investigation into the story, was there anything that you discovered that, that hadn't been revealed before? Well, the main thing that was that was revealed that I, I found out who committed the robbery. That hadn't been found out. And uh, I got in touch, I, I talked to a lot of people. One of them was a retired prosecutor. And he had some interest in another case that was going on, the theft of the movie slippers up in Grand Rapids. And he said, he said, do some research on that for me. And if you find out of, of anything of, of interest, maybe I can put you in touch with a guy who I know who was a well-known thief around town here. And he might be able to tell you something about this, Robert. So I poked around on that Ruby Slippers theft for a while, found out some things, told him, and he said, okay, this works. I mean, thank you. You're going to get a call. And I got a call from a guy with a very distinctive voice. Uh, and he told me how the robbery had been planned and who did it. And there was, there were four people in on it. And only one of them was dead at the time that I wrote the book. So I revealed his name. That was Kent Anderson. I believe he was probably in his forties at the time that that robbery took place. 
his brother is Louis Anderson, the well-known comedian. And he was kind of a character around town. And he was enlisted to be part of a little crew that did this robbery. He was mostly a lookout. And in return for his services, he had first crack at fencing those paintings. And he wasn't able to get rid of them. They did, you know, nobody knew what they were getting into there. Uh, and these, these, it turned out that the people who, who contracted to have these paintings stolen were really only interested in the fake Renoir because they didn't want it revealed that it was a fake. And this is the Miami underworld. And they had, they contracted with a well-known thief around the, twi around the Twin Cities here to get, and told him, get a crew together, get those paintings. Your pay is whatever. We're not interested in the Rockwells. Help yourself. Sell them. I imagine they paid him a fee to get, take the Renoir. Renoir was never seen again. Maybe seen. Maybe by now it has been seen. The way they do is they lay low with that stuff for a long time. But uh, their their only real interest was getting that Renoir. Then the thieves, this, these four guys, had these paintings, and they ran into the problem at all. Thieves who steal big art, great art, not so great art, whatever, uh, run into. They had no way to get rid of it for money. Uh, I found out that you might, if you're going to be an art teacher, you're much better off stealing kind of, you know, artists that have a little bit of a reputation and their paintings sell for four or $5,000 and there's a, a market for them. They can be gotten rid of for something less than their case value. But if you're talking about paintings where someone, where they're worth tens of thousands of dollars, nobody will touch them, not even for very little money because they're, they're hot. <laughs> There's nothing you can do with them. You can't sell them on for more money. So they were stuck with these things and they had nothing. They, they tried various methods of getting rid of them. One of them at one point tried to trade it for a reduced sentence for something that he was a very serious crime that he was facing time for, which he got off of them, a flute. And, uh, then how they ended up in Europe, uh, I think there's just a regular network that runs through the East Coast and through connections with the Italian mafia, it goes into a stolen art network in Europe. So that's where they ended up. And these, I, by six or seven years after the paintings were stolen, the, the crew that got together in Minneapolis had nothing further to do with them. Did you ever follow up with Louis Anderson? Uh, did you ever ask him about his brother? Well, I tried to. I I got his phone number from some people who knew him, and I called. I didn't. He didn't answer the phone, but I got a message to him, and he said he would prefer not to talk to his brother about his brother. He said, you know, he said I love I love my brother. He was a nice guy. I wasn't familiar with his, you know, personal life at that time, and uh, I'm going to leave it at that. I know you're short for time today, so I'll wrap this up. Um, again, your book is called The Rockwell Heist. It's published by Borealis, which is a division of the Minnesota Historical Society Press and available in local bookstores and, and of course, through the regular online bookshops. Yes, that's right. 
Well, I appreciate so much your time today, uh, taking time to chat with me about this. Okay, thanks for calling. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis, and I'll see you soon. Saving money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Saving money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big-